When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. My guest today, as Managing Director of Corporate Strategy and Impact of Chief Executives for Corporate Purpose, otherwise known as CECP, works at the very heart of purpose. CECP is a CEO-led coalition founded in 1999 by actor and philanthropist Paul Newman. No, my guest is not Paul Newman. Just getting that out there now, but don't stop Don't stop listening. Keep on going. CECP aims to create a better world through business. So CECP really is the OG behind purpose and profit. But what does that mean exactly in an age of ESG reporting, a call for volunteering, and a global push for racial equity? This is what Carrie Needfelt-Thomas, my guest today, not Paul Newman, endeavors to unpack by working with companies to help them transform their ESG strategy and reshape how they engage with key stakeholders. Carrie also currently serves as mayor of the city of New Brighton, Minnesota. She was elected in 2020 and assumed office in January. Carrie, welcome to Brand on Purpose and congratulations on being mayor of New Brighton, Minnesota. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for the congrats. Well, I love how you're like a double threat on the show today because you run and you're part of an incredible organization of CECP, but you also are in public service. So we're going to kind of interrogate both of those. Now, when I was reading about CECP, and I know we talked about this a little bit in off air in a pre-interview, I was embarrassed to admit that I had never really heard of CECP before. Meanwhile, CECP is one of the OG organizations for really engaging in igniting leadership in private and publicly held companies to do far more in terms of social impact and to bake it into their businesses, either through volunteering or other endeavors. And I have been very familiar with, obviously, with Paul Newman and his incredible salad dressing. But I do remember when he launched that way back when, I was thinking, you know, that's really interesting. He's actually mixing social impact with something that consumer packaged goods, which really had not been done before. This is way before Tom's, before conscious capitalism. And even though I know that ESG and social impact and purpose from a corporate standpoint is not a new idea, I feel like the organization that you're working for is one of the first to really ground it and to do the necessary hard work and outreach amongst leaders and CEOs to operationalize it inside of companies. So there's a bunch of questions in there, but I'm just going to stop there and let you talk because people aren't here to hear me speak. They're here to hear my guests speak and talk a little bit about that founding, how it came to be. And also, if you can just take us through kind of a quick history from 99 to now 2021 on how CECP has played such an important role in making sure that purpose becomes more central to a company's mission. Glad to share the genesis story of CECP. It is one where Paul Newman had been talking with some of his CEO peers and was frustrated with global companies 
moving to globalization. He was concerned about the disinvestment of corporations in their local operating communities. And in particular, he felt that philanthropy was withering. And he wanted to make sure that these companies, just as he had done with his own company, they looked to how they could make a bigger difference here in the communities where their employees were located, where they had their offices and their manufacturing facilities. And so these CEOs got together and they originally CECP stood for Committee Encouraging Corporate Philanthropy. That's the original name of CECP. And the CEOs came together and they were talking about a number of ways. And as you know, CEOs are competitive. And so they were readily looking for opportunities to benchmark, to be able to determine how they're doing compared to others. And they also recognized that they had teams inside their companies who led on this work. So from the very beginning, CECP has supported CEOs in their corporate purpose journeys, being able to bring them together, convene them, have important conversations, closed door, so they can be honest with each other so they can learn from one another and not feel that they're being judged if they're at all different places on that journey. And then we also have a whole set of work and research and support that CECP has always provided for those individuals inside of companies leading the corporate responsibility strategy or whatever it's called inside of a company. Because Everybody calls it something different. Some call it corporate citizenship. Some call it corporate purpose. Some may have a corporate foundation. Some don't. They do it through their community affairs or public affairs teams. So whatever it's called, that corporate purpose work is the team that we are always working with. And then we also have a team that's always working with CEOs. Along this journey, CECP started our giving in numbers report, which is the industry's oldest historical data set on corporate community investments. If you've ever seen the Giving USA report that comes out of Indiana University, CECP provides the corporate data to that report. The companies that we work with, the majority of them are 2 billion and larger. And so we have a few that we refer to as pace setters. They're companies that are close or on their way. They have a special corporate purpose focus, but the majority are larger companies. And so through that giving in numbers research, we're tracking how much that they're giving through their community investment programs, both as a company and their foundation. We're tracking volunteerism work that they're leading on. We're looking at ways that they're engaging and where all of this is reporting up to inside of a company, because that is a part of how this corporate purpose work has evolved over the years. It's led with this work related to what often can get referred to as CSR, corporate social responsibility, but it has evolved over time. The work that we're doing with companies right now, they're exploring their work around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've been doing work helping them ground around what employees are looking for, how they find fulfillment at work. Uh, we've been leading on, as you noted, ESG research, how companies are looking at both the programs that they're running inside of their business that are advancing those strategies, but at the same time, how they can connect to investors and really that sustainable investment lens. We have a CEO investor forum where we have had 
30 CEOs deliver their long-term plans to institutional investors to be able to really tell their story about why they are looking for the long-term in their communities. So somewhere in our journey, we went just by CECP as our acronym name. And then three years ago, when we achieved our 20th anniversary, we renamed CECP, redefined the acronym to Chief Executives for Corporate Purpose. So it's been quite a journey over the past 20 plus years. Yeah, no, for sure. And I appreciate the abridged version of that. I have so many questions. The one that I really want to ask of the 10, I noticed that you have an affiliation or you've been a guest lecturer at Carlson School of Management. And three, four years ago now, I did a huge presentation. I forget the name of the program that they had through their business school. And I did a presentation on purpose. And there was like two, 300 people in the auditorium. And the enga- level of engagement was incredible. It was the energy in the room. They didn't laugh at my jokes, and that's fine. New York and Midwest, sometimes the jokes don't necessarily land when you're from New York, but that's totally fine. I've lived both places, so I can handle your jokes. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Some <laughs> of them are just dad, they're stupid dad jokes. But one of the things I often end on, and sometimes it can come off a little snarky, is there's no uniform certification or measure when it comes to publicly traded companies of how they're actually doing when it comes to anything that you talked about, ESG, CSR, social impact, purpose, whatever it is, right? You have B Corp out there, which is the kind of the pre-certification and to keep them honest type of process. But, and there are a lot of companies that are B Corp certified. I have a lot of respect for B Corp. They've been on the show. I also have had companies like Decker's, for example, the CEO is on the show. And he's like, we love everything B Corp does, but we don't need to go through that because we do that, right? But there still isn't like a uniform measure for not just accountability, but for progress. Because I'm less concerned about companies saying they're going to do what they're going to do. I think that there's a whole level of transparency now that's unprecedented and welcome now on that. It's more so making sure that there's forward progress, right? There's accountability, but there's also kind of forward momentum. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I don't think that is necessarily CECP's role per se, but in the future, how do you envision a level of both transparency and standardization around tracking what companies are doing to make sure that there is forward progress? And how do you measure that progress? So a lot in what you just said, and agree with you that there is not one individual ranking or rating or standardized method. There are a number of frameworks standards, models that companies participate in. We've been asked by many companies, can you help eliminate some of these rankings and ratings? Because there's a new one that pops up every day. And my response is, if companies stopped filling out every new ranking and rating, they would stop creating them. They're new businesses. I mean, they're popping up because there is a perceived need that companies are looking for new avenues to tell their broad, let's say, ESG story. And The reality is that your question around no uniform measure, and I would say that sometimes measures can hold companies back. Measures can say, this is really all you have to do to check a box. And if you do these, then you've done the right thing. And there are some efforts that even CECP has been a part of. For example, the World Economic Forum just created a set of guidance related to which metrics truly will help companies to be able to measure across a broad range of ESG issues. CECP created total social investment metric, 
our metric is included in that guidance as one of the ways that companies can look at how they're serving society broadly. But the reality is that companies are looking to continually evolve their work. We just put out our latest version of our Investing in Society report. This is a state of corporate purpose across a range of ESG metrics. And we did a factor analysis to determine all of the Bloomberg metrics that companies are reporting. What does that show us? Where is their alignment? And we really found that a lot of companies have done an extensive amount of reporting on their e-metrics, environmental metrics. And part of that is connected to compliance issues, regulatory. So if you think of there have been check the boxes, that a lot of them have gone through and they're wanting also simultaneously through some of their sustainability initiatives to be able to drive down costs, to be able to look at new market opportunities. And so a lot of companies have really exploded in some of the E metrics, the G metrics and some of the S metrics, and we've been doing social for a very long time, are more simplified. And so we did identify that there are tremendous opportunities for companies to more define some of their governance issues and be able to report on them and provide transparency. But the I believe that companies are all on a journey at different places. And that's important to realize that one company may all of a sudden come to us and say, hey, tell me about this ESG. And there are other companies who have been on this journey for a really long time. We have to, as an organization, be able to help those companies wherever all of them are. We have to be at the leading edge to be able to help those who are pushing the boundaries and for us to be able to keep companies on their purpose journey. And then we also have to be able to help companies that are earlier. You noted in the previous question that you didn't really know about CECP. And I would say those companies who do this work know who CECP is because they've been working with for a long time. And we have evolved with them on how they have defined these issues. Companies are continually looking at new ways, whether it's through their supplier networks, whether it is through their customers, what are their customers having as expectations? And so looking through that broad stakeholder lens, companies have continually evolved their work and it will require companies to say, These are the metrics we're using. A lot of companies use, for example, the Global Reporting Initiative. Some companies are talking about their work through a sustainable development goal lens. But ultimately, they all are working to align and compare at times because, as I noted, everyone wants to get better. No one wants to be told you're the worst. And so there are some basic frameworks, I would say, that companies are aligning on. SASB has come out with some of their guidance on ESG metrics. So I do believe that through all of this, companies will continually keep refining what is important, but there are going to be new issues that come up five, 10 years from now. And you don't want to say to companies, if you do this, you're set. You want keep striving and stretching to be able to move outside of what is today their current comfort zone. I've always felt everything you're talking about is a journey with no end because we have to represent, you know, what is going on in humanity and society and corporations have a huge role in that. One of the movements I'd like to start, and I've said this in other episodes, is I'd like to reframe or rename ESG to EESG because I do think that 
equity now has become such a central theme and force, and hopefully it's here forever, and rebalancing what equity means inside of companies. And I'm curious from your perspective, at what point in CECP's history did you move more towards social issues, or especially around equality and equity, but really around diversity, equity, and inclusion? And so many people I speak to talk about this notion that you first have to have diversity, and that's a measure, right? But to your point, measures might not be meaningful because unless you unlock diversity and transform it into inclusion, right? Diversity is just a number. It doesn't matter how diverse your workforce is if you're not actually activating that diversity and including them, right? But there's also been a lot of discussion recently around the notion of belonging. Inclusion isn't enough. Where inclusion is ultimately successful is when you have your diverse stakeholder base, whether it's suppliers or direct employees or contractors, and everyone that you work with feel like they belong. How do you measure or how do you track progress around the notion of belonging in an organization? And this is a really big question. I'm sorry almost for asking it, but it's it's something I think about almost every day as a leader myself and as a, somebody who counsels companies on these things. Companies have been looking to this issue. They've just called it something different over the years. Think about employee engagement surveys that companies have been putting out for years, or they track their reputation in the community, or they are looking at their social reputation based on the programs that they're running out in communities or they're partnering on in communities. So companies have always been looking at this intersection of Are we doing what others are wanting from us? Are our employees wanting to stay with us? Are we retaining our employees because they see us as an employer of choice? I would say that the equity lens, to your point of EESG, I look at equity needs to be embedded in ESG, each of them, not be its own piece. Because if you don't look at equity around your corporate governance structure. For example, women on boards, people of color, how are you recruiting? Are you recruiting through your normal networks? Because if you're doing it through your normal networks, you're not going to be achieving some of the goals that some of these companies have put in place. Same for the social part, or it could be under governance. Again, how every company reports their S and their G can vary. Some may put their promotion plans and women in leadership in their company or the advancement to middle management and C-suite for people of color. They may be tracking that under a governance instead of under social. But ultimately, where companies are heading on this, you know, CECP has always been a part of the social. And we know that companies have been looking at all of their work through a social connection point over the years, but they haven't always recognized where there have been inequities. And it is that place in time where we are right now. I'll give an example that a lot of companies have made grants to various nonprofit organizations and through their foundation, let's say. And they have asked for these nonprofits in their reporting. They've been transparent. We'd like you to tell us the demographics of the individuals that you're serving. We'd like to know what the demographics are of your employees. And we'd like to know about your boards. But rarely have companies turned inward to say, 
Who are the staff members that are making these decisions on these grants? Who are the people who are serving on our boards? And do we only put on our foundation board, for example, the individuals that are in the top tiers of our company? And instead, maybe you're looking to create a different web of decision-making, a different model. Do you have a, a rubric that you're using to make your decisions on who's going to receive a grant that is connected to some of the equity issues going on in these communities? Have your people been trained on what systemic poverty and challenges are in these communities? So having companies go on this new journey has been exciting for us. It's a topic that We've talked about, we issued a report three years ago on diversity and inclusion and corporate social engagement and looked at a number of ways where companies were leading. Some companies had long ago moved to, for example, a health equity model. Cigna would be one example. They built the concept of maternal health into their community engagement model, which of course has an effect across their business lines also. So they were embedding that, but some are earlier on that. And they're realizing that there's a lot of work to do. To your point about belonging, absolutely. I think this inclusion and belonging and how companies are recognizing that both their employees and their broader customer network, how people see themselves in their brand is important, but measuring it is what's hard. It's easy to check a box with diversity. It's harder to do it with equity, inclusion, and belonging. And I think companies are looking for how to adapt some of their traditional tools, like we talked about employee engagement surveys, customer net promoter scores. Like there are gonna be new ways that companies are looking at how can we start to measure this area that we've, we've been tangentially reaching, but not really deeply embedding in. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. and. I find your background interesting. We're similar in that we're, we both have a deep background in communications marketing strategy. And it has been pretty apparent over the last several years in particular that ESG seems to be falling or indexing very heavily inside a corporation near to or around the public affairs, comms kind of function. I don't disagree with that. I th actually think that can be very powerful as long as it's not a veneer, as long as it's not dressing, right? I love the fact that the organization reframed what the C means in CECP, so it's the CEO. And I've always believed that it has to start from the top. The CEO, in all the case studies, all the work that I've done, every successful integration of ESG and purpose and impact always starts with as in heavily invested and endorsed by the chief executive. How important though, is it also that not just what you do, but how you frame and say and communicate what you do will also dictate the success of its impact in the market? Absolutely. It does. And I think if you were seeing some of this play out right now about companies figuring out what they should step out on what they should say. And there's been some interesting research. We have an ongoing set of questions that we ask for CEOs at our board of board. This is the closed door gathering of CEOs coming together. And over the years, we have asked them, and we haven't had an in-person in a while, realize that, but that each year we were seeing the question that kept 
increasing dramatically was what is the one area where you as a CEO can make the biggest difference for your company on a number of purpose-driven topics. And it was a CEO coming out and speaking in their own voice. And that in 2019, the CEOs who attended that event, it was at 67%. And we can see that over these last two years, what has happened, that CEOs have understood deeply that their stakeholders, their employees, their investors, others in the community, their suppliers, other networks that they have are looking to them for that leadership. And we have done a lot of work with Edelman over the years. Richard Edelman actually sits on our board of directors and they've regularly presented. And I'm probably sure you're familiar with their trust barometer. And one of the areas that they identify is that there is a critical important for CEOs to recognize that employees see their company as their most trusted source of information. And companies are increasingly showing up in the trust barometer as having more trust than government or media. And media. And so if a company is that trusted source and companies are being expected to lead, they have to have a point of view. And as you noted, that starts at the top. And CEOs are feeling comfortable that they have something to say. They have a direction they're taking their company and they're coming out and they're declaring it, which is uncomfortable for some people in society. Like, why does a company think that they have a right to do so? But all the research is showing that everybody trusts them and everybody is expecting for them to have a voice. So this ESG journey that they're on, you can't really in there quite measure a company taking a stand, a company having an opinion. But we know that within two weeks of the capital attack, that pulse survey that we did of companies, that 57% of the companies reported that they had halted PAC contributions to individuals who had not said that the election was fair. So that is huge. Companies- So can I just ask you about that? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. and this is just me being a little bratty, I think, but you know, I appreciate how companies took action and either froze or stopped those contributions and or certain social media platforms finally, finally kicked, you know, hateful individuals and insurrectionists off of their platforms. And they still remain off those platforms. And I think we all know who I'm talking about. At the same time, I can't help to wonder why did it take an attack, an insurrection, an attack on our capital on, you know, literally, you know, the cathedral of democracy in America for them to finally take action. Why did it take that? I don't have an answer as to why, except for that we all reach a breaking point, right? We all reach a point when we feel like it's our time to say something. And that's kind of the connection to my running for mayor. I had reached a point where I felt like it was time for me to do this. So I believe that all of these companies will figure out and they do what their stakeholders are looking for. And that continually evolves as they evolve their business model. But they have all reached a point, all of them in different places, of where they feel they're going to take a stand. And one of the most powerful stakeholders that they have is employees. And another area in a business, another function where we have seen 
a growth. It's a slight amount of growth, but that all of this purpose work is often falling inside of the human resources departments because companies are recognizing we have talented employees, we want to retain them, and we need to listen to them. They're telling us what our customers are looking for. They're telling us what they want for them to stay working here. And so I believe that some of this this pressure that happens inside of companies around speaking out on certain issues is also connected to employees. It's not just that the CEO wakes up someday and says, I got to say something. They believe they should say something, but when they're having thousands of emails come into their inbox from their employees, they're like, all right, I'm not alone. I think I can do this. Having someone validate for you that your instincts are correct is part of what some of this is happening, right? It's not just the public relations team inside of a company defining what's going to happen. It now is a much more integrated and I would say aligned model across a business. Yeah, it does. And I've seen this with my own clients over the years. It does cut both ways because those values that you're talking about that employees want their CEOs and their companies to dig into might not necessarily be the same values that the entire country represents, right? So for example, if you're Hobby Lobby, just as a, a way back example, those values are different than if you are, I don't know, Starbucks and making you know statements that you're gonna hire 10,000 immigrants, you know? It's just, it's not that one is right or one is wrong, except you're gonna see more and more companies lean in on and start to act on their values. And those values cut across a very, very broad spectrum. And to quote my friend Ray Day, who's the former CEO, uh, Chief Communications Officer of both Ford and IBM, you know, he always talks about how you know corporate reputation is comprised of character times performance, right? And I think what we're starting to see now and more of right now is the character come to the fore. And I think where CEOs struggle, and you probably see this all the time in your closed door meetings, and I'm sure you have Chatham House rules, where they're like, well, you know, yeah, I don't want to, I do feel like I need to pull my advertising on Tucker Carlson. I'm just using it as an example on Fox. But half my customers love Fox, love Tucker Carlson, and they're going to stop buying my stuff, right? And those are really difficult issues to navigate or needles to thread because you are potentially having to sacrifice, and I think you should, potential revenue in exchange for sticking by a value, which usually is rooted in humanity. And then you need to say to your shareholder, yeah, we're going to take a little bit of hit on revenue because there's this whole part of the population who is totally fine with disinformation and misinformation, but we don't want to sell to them anymore. We're not going to sell to them anymore. And there's no right or wrong answer. I mean, there is for me, but those are the types of very difficult conversations that typically communicators are having with executives, not HR people. And that's the difference between HR people, you know, who are very important in terms of activating the employees and volunteering and giving back. But there are also like larger stands that CEOs need to take. And that is really hard. And every issue is different. And every issue has a consequence, right? Absolutely. And I would say also that you talk about a corporate values, but you can lead with your values as a company and still not have a purpose-driven, purpose-focused direction. 
And I think that that is the difference of where we're at in society right now as to companies years ago. Companies often felt like, well, we have a good corporate culture and everyone is committed to, you know, being customer driven and supporting their colleagues and those kinds of values that we might have seen 20 years ago. And the values and that directional view is the difference that we see for companies now. When we talk about their corporate purpose, companies are thinking about it in a much more networked way. They're no longer just thinking about come to work, do a great job, and sell whatever it is, product and service that we have, and good will come to our company. Companies are recognizing now also that there is a business imperative to this, that there is for them to compete in the marketplace. They have to be able to have a purpose. They have to clarify for everyone where they're going. And you're right. All companies are going to have attract different kinds of employees based on that culture and based on that purpose. But ultimately, companies are recognizing that this is critical for them to survive for them to be leaders. You could have a small business and kind of do what you want, but when you're a bigger business and there's a larger spotlight on you and you have activist investors asking questions, you certainly have to have your charted path forward outlined and clarified for everyone. How hard was it for you in your role? I know that you joined CECP, I guess in 2018, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So you're there in 2018. And then in May of 2020, you have the murder of George Floyd. You live in the greater, I guess I would just call it the greater St. Paul, Minneapolis area, right? I don't know if I'm wrong in saying that. It's very New York of me. You live in that, yep. that space, that area. Yep. And you also are working for the premier kind of OG of purpose and and social impact as it relates to representing more than 200 companies, right? Huge brands, Aflac, American Airlines, Apple, City, Credit Suisse, Goldman, Black, Stanley Black & Decker. I mean, major, major brands, global brands. If you can take me back to that moment and what those conversations are like with your members, your stakeholders, and what CECP was doing at that moment and then thereafter, Glad to. Well, so when you mentioned I started at CECP in 2018, I previously had worked inside of a company and CECP had been one of my trusted advisors. So I had worked with the Mosaic Company and led the corporate foundation and the global corporate responsibility strategy. So I knew the value of CECP. Our CEO had received an award for one of our global agricultural development programs that we had. So I had a relationship with CECP. I knew the work of the organization. And I also had been in the field for a while to understand where it's been and where it's going and the role that CECP could play in helping companies be able to advance on a number of different topic areas. So some of the research and work that we've been doing over the years, we've had curated communities on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we've been working with companies regularly on these issues. I've had conversations with the senior leaders inside of companies regularly. And if I go back to the week you mentioned a year ago, after the killing of George Floyd, 
and the conversations that I was having with the corporate responsibility heads inside of companies, they were saying, our CEO wants to do something. We believe we need to do something. We need CECP. Help us figure this out. It was almost like our CEO wants permission to be able to come out and say what it is that they want to say. And so we had lots of conversations. And this was within a day we were having these conversations. And I was reaching out to a few other leaders also, and we were having conversations internally. And I was really clear and said, and this had less probably to do with being in the Twin Cities and more to do with my knowing where these leaders are and what their urgency inside of them was that this is a time where our company has to stand up to this. We have to talk about it. Our employees are reaching out to us. Some of the leaders of color were saying, our employees are looking to me and saying, why has our company not yet said anything? How can we not not say something? So we put together a page linked immediately on our homepage. It's still there where we had companies send us your racial equity statement that you're making. That if your CEO or anyone on your C-suite has come out, we'll put it here. This is our statement that we're making as an organization. And we encourage you to be a part of these conversations. And we were not the only reason that company spoke out immediately. I think everyone was really surprised about it. But to me, this was pent up. These were companies who have been on journeys with their employee resource groups and attempting to reach out. They have changed some of their policies. They've reported on them in their sustainability reports. But they all recognized that there was just so much more to do. And so all of that moment came forward and we started holding listening sessions for the CEOs to be able to come together and talk about these issues. We held some corporate conversations with these leaders. I was facilitating them to be able to have them come together and say, this is what I know, this is what I don't know. Some were saying, I have a million dollars I have to give away and we've never given anything focused on social justice with just that term. Help us figure out how we do that. And in these peer conversations, they could learn from each other. We also curated guidance for them, uh, some briefings that we had put together. We helped them identify ways that they could do it. So ultimately, there was this moment where companies realized that they had an opportunity and they wanted to step out. And then out of all of that, we had built a partnership with three other organizations, Points of Light, Council on Foundations, and the Association for Corporate Citizenship Professionals. We had, right after the pandemic, held corporate peer discussions during that time to be able to help those leaders. This group had already planned on doing some work on racial equity, because of the pandemic. But when this moment happened, we catalyzed all of our efforts and put together an event last December called Racial Equity, Moving Companies from Promise to Action. Because we know that a lot of these companies just felt, we're going to say something. And even if we don't have it all figured out, we're going to. And they were coming up with their action plans on how to make it happen. So our focus was helping them be in a place where they could be honest, open, listen to cross-sector information, but most importantly, how to stay grounded in their communities. 
it's very easy for companies to get wrapped up around what it is that everyone's telling them that they should do. But ultimately, they have to go back to the community and say, where are we falling down? What do we need to do? And how do we make sure that we can improve our work and racial equity in partnership with communities of color? Looking back now over the last year, year and change, from one pandemic to, you know, there are really dual pandemics. One has lasted for hundreds of years, but, you know, had been catalyzed by the murder of George Floyd. The other came about in more of a, through the lens of healthcare, right? And the first level of pandemic communications that we were drafting with our leadership, different clients and whatnot, it wasn't that hard. And I don't mean that in a funny way. It was, you know, we're all in this together type of, you know, let's get through this together and is about resilience, right? And then we moved from resilience to then counseling CEOs on how to be more vulnerable, not to get all Brene Brown on you, but the notion that the CEO now is the chief engagement officer, not just the chief executive officer, I think was a huge pivot and shift over the last year following the, the murder of George Floyd. And in my own experience, I found certain CEOs to take to it and accept that role and that voice immediately. No problem. It's who they were. They were very comfortable with it. It lined with their values. Others, it might've aligned with their values, but they still were uncomfortable putting in communication things like Black Lives Matter. And I can't tell you how many arguments I'd had, I'm not going to name who, with certain organizations in trying to explain to them what that meant, right? Because there's so much misinformation. And one of the things that struck me, and I'm, I'm curious if it struck you as well, is, you know, again, I'm going back to comms here, right? But words matter, phrases matter. And there's so much confusion around BLM, which I believe is now changing to the movement for Black Lives, which I don't think is a terrible idea because it, it takes away some of the the toxicity around all lives and blue lives and things like that, that are countermeasures that I think are rooted in a lot of hate and prejudice. But that's like for another probably podcast. But even things like defund the police, I think it was misunderstood because I think people thought that meant shut them down. And that's not what defund the police means. But again, it all comes back to effective communications, right? That then leads to action. And now as mayor, and again, congrats on that, I think, (laughs) um, of a town that is inside of the metropolitan area of the Twin Cities. And there's been so much attention and horrible, you know, news and violence and attention paid towards that part of the country. As mayor, I'm assuming that's one of the reasons why you ran. And I'm assuming as well that you have some views on, you know, what you can do and what people can do in public service as well to try to, to rebalance the scales. Absolutely. That's why I ran. And there is a lot that people can do. The Friday after the killing of George Floyd and our family was watching the city of Minneapolis burn, there was this moment where I felt that society wasn't recognizing the importance of, as you're mentioning, Black lives, communities of color that have had years, generations, centuries of challenges and oppression. And at the same time, the importance of public safety, that there is this immediate reaction that you have to pick a side. And I felt in this moment, I said out loud to my family, I've always said that I should run for office. And my 18-year-old, who was a senior in high school, turned to me and said, so why don't you? 
And I said, okay, I will. And it was kind of how that started end of May and recognizing that the city that I'm in back in 2000, long before 21st century policing, put together a public safety model. So we have fire, police, emergency response. We have a nonprofit that has mental health services, someone who can work on mental health calls. So a much more holistic model in our city than other cities have done and has benefited from that. And I recognize and know that we have this opportunity in our city that has already been ahead, well ahead of many other cities to be able to do even more to be able to have a community that feels welcoming and inclusive. Simultaneously though, there had been an inclusive task force that had met, started three years prior to my announcing I was running and they had come forward with some recommendations and those hadn't moved forward. So I was frustrated. I felt like we have an opportunity where we as a city could lead with genuine leadership And it's not only about public safety. To have a city be welcoming and inclusive, you have to look all the way across your processes, your systems, your employees' training. I do know that our public safety team has built a culture, not of warriors, they've built a culture of guardians, and that they really look closely at how to think about the humanity in our community. They are, during the pandemic, delivering food. They were going to some of the food production facilities where They were helping employees get connected to a vaccine clinic that we were holding. So I will be honest, I think our model has been great, but it has certainly been a time in community for everyone to reflect on how can we all do better? This is not just for one department. This is not just one city. And I think as you're talking about people being inspired to lead, there are commissions, there are committees that are set up, there are activities that people take on that are just on their own in communities to be able to make a community better, more welcoming. And I would encourage any of the listeners to find your opportunity to be able to take this moment in time and find out what's needed and then dig in and help make it happen. Yeah, my guess is one of your greatest challenges among like the 30 of them that you're probably facing as mayor is, you know, like you said earlier, people automatically become very polarized. It's like it's it's right or wrong. You're for the police or against the police. And that's not the way life is. Right. I mean, and that's the companies are the same way. Right. It's the same thing. It's like it's like any relationship. You constantly have to work at it to make it better. And we are multifaceted, you know, 360 degree characters and I was just reading this in my local paper this morning, how, you know, these police officers were called to, I think, a Kohl's or a Target in a near, town nearby. And the manager of the store called in a person who was homeless, uh, you know, they stole socks. So the officers, instead of arresting the individual, said, oh, wow, it's a lot of socks you got in your bag here. He's like, clearly you need socks. And the guy's like, yeah. And the officers went into their own pocket and they bought the guy socks. And then they said, oh, and by the way, stop by the station later, not because we're going to arrest you, because we'd like to give you a list of resources in case you need a place to stay and how to get back on your feet and training and things like that. And there are so many of those stories that don't see the light of day because that's not like the popular kind of narrative. And I get that there's a counter narrative and they're not every police officer is necessarily behaving in the way that we want them to behave. I get that. Just like that's the case everywhere at all facets of society. But 
I think we just need to embrace that there's also a lot of really good people and good things happening out in the world. And that's an interesting kind of narrative to, to hold and a huge responsibility as mayor of a city. Absolutely. And you're right. There are amazing stories out there. And there isn't a single person that goes into any form of public service from an elected role to appointed to being hired, such as those on a public safety team, that they go into those roles not wanting to help society. That's why they make those choices. Listen, Carrie, I could talk to you for hours and hours. Honestly, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate everything that you're doing from a public service standpoint and what you do with CECP. And I am also happy to be part of being able to tell the CECP story to a broader audience, because I think it's a story that is obviously, you know, it's so funny. I think about, you know, that expression, you know, it's what you do when others aren't looking that matters. And I feel like that has been CECP, right? So CECP has been doing this incredible work behind the scenes without any pomp or circumstance or wanting to get credit for it because it's real work. It's for the true reason of being and being able to give back and activate these companies. So I thank you for that. I thank you for being such a strong voice for them and for all of us and for being on the show. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your having me and for you helping to elevate all the voices of leaders who are a part of this journey of uh, making the world a better place. My goal is through CECP, focusing on business being a force for good and continually looking at ways I can help companies on that journey. I love it. Thanks again. Thank you. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquitkin.com. 